0: Thank you all for coming today and, uh, and joining us here. Uh, it's a pleasure to be up here with two very distinguished social scientists, and um, uh, I'm really looking forward to the discussion between them and, and, and our audience. There's a, a huge number of issues I think this, this, uh, uh, this book raises, and um, uh, very important to a huge array of policy. Um, Brian's going to talk about uh, population policy and, and what it means for our planet, our country, Um, but it obviously touches a wide array of things, parenting in general, schools, education policy. Um, Probably doesn't need any introduction to the people in this room and and, and, uh, a large number of people, but in case you're not familiar with some of the details, uh, Charles Murray is the W.H. Brady Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and relevant to this book, his um, most controversial and famous Uh, publication uh, most likely the bell curve uh, New York Times bestseller in 1994 sparked heated debate and controversy for its analysis of the role of IQ on life outcomes in America but it's found uh, widespread support over the years from the scientific evidence in 1998 he wrote income inequality and IQ which examined how personal characteristics affect how people how much people earn in his latest book directly uh, uh, addressing my issue area, real education provides a framework for rethinking what parents should demand from an educational system. He received his PhD in political science from MIT and has written numerous books and articles in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, you name it. uh, He has been the subject of cover stories by Newsweek, the New York Times Magazine, and Los Angeles Times Magazine. Uh, the author of the book we're discussing here today, Brian Kaplan, is a professor of economics at George Mason University and an adjunct scholar here at Cato, a blogger for Econlog, one of the Wall Street Journal's top 25 economics blogs. And his first book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, was a huge hit, named the best political book of the year by the New York Times, and uh, made the Financial Times list of best books. His most recent recent book, uh, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, is the topic of the, the book forum today. And um, essentially what it argues is that people overestimate how much effort it takes to be a good parent. Based on the genetics literature, behavioral genetics literature, on heritability of important traits and life outcomes, being a great parent is less work and more fun than you think. So you should have more kids. Brian received his PhD in economics from Princeton University. He's published articles, again, widely in New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and of course, all the major economic, uh, economics uh, journals. Both of our, well actually all three of us are parents, so we have some uh, actual personal experience with this topic, in addition to uh, familiarity with the literature. And um, before I, I, I get to, uh, to turn it over to Brian for his presentation on, on his taking what this means for um, public policy, just wanted to give a little bit of context for the book and, and the topic. I'm pretty, fami- I'm pretty familiar with evolutionary theory and evolutionary psychology, but the behavioral genetics literature was fairly new to me. I'd read some of it, but not as intensively or as much as, as Brian presents in this review. And I went into reading the book expecting that genetics explained the lion's share of life outcomes and major personality traits, IQ, personality. I wasn't surprised exactly about that. What did strike me was how the literature defines nurture, and I think this is important and will lead to a lot of great discussion, um, nurture and family environment. It's defined essentially as the shared environment for for children in a family. And uh, one one part uh, of the book uh, struck me in particular, and I hope you don't mind if I, I read from it just to contextualize the discussion. No two people have exactly the same environment. Two children who live under one roof have different teachers and friends. They watch different TV programs and eat different f- foods. One is the top bunk, the other is the bottom bunk. One gets a spanking, the other gets a bedtime story. Most, but not all, eventually leave their childhood home. How then can researchers say that two kids were nurtured in the same way? The answer is that researchers equate nurtured in the same way with were raised by the same people. If parents' income education, marital status, parenting philosophy, religion, school district, or favorite color affect the children, it counts as nurture. What doesn't count? Any feature that varies despite the fact that they are raised by the same people. Um, It's none of the above. Uh, Parental favoritism, dumb luck, free will. It struck me because I I was thinking of nurture in terms of the wide array of environmental influences that often get put in the non-shared environment. And in particular, a parent's relationship with an individual child, um, the school that that child went to that might not be shared by a sibling. And uh, I just wanted to give that as context to the discussion and hopefully put put some questions in your mind for the discussion later on. Um, With that, I'd like to turn to Brian Kaplan and his presentation and uh, look forward to question and answers after a discussion from Charles Murray. Thank you.
1: Yeah. See. what do I need to do to make it come up on the screen? Ah, there we are. <clears throat> ah, very good. All right, here is the book cover. Yes, the title is "Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids: Why Being a Great Parent Is Less Work and More Fun Than You Think." And just start up with uh, sort of the question that many of the people who did not come today might have been asking themselves: uh, Kids at Cato? Uh, you know, so parenting does seem very far outside Cato's core concerns. And yet, nevertheless, this building was, or this book was actually conceived at the Cato Institute. Uh, back in 1991, 20 years ago, uh, to be more precise, it was conceived at the old building of the Cato Institute. Uh, so now the building is changing. But uh, this was actually, in a sense, uh, a Cato book. Uh, now, of course, libertarians have always been against coercive population control. I've never come across a libertarian who thinks that China's one-child policy is a good idea or would defend it. Uh, but when I was at Cato, I discovered something very different. Uh, I was introduced to the economist Julian Simon, who actually argued that we underestimate the social benefits of people. So he didn't just say that it's very important to reduce population, but we can do it non-coercively. Rather, what he said is people who are trying to coercively reduce population are using coercion to do something bad. They're using coercion to make the world worse. It's not just that they are using bad means for a good end. They're using bad means for a bad end. All right, now I just want to very quickly summarize uh, what Simon's arguments were. Again, we can talk about them more in the Q&A if you like. So what he said is high and growing populations are good. Uh, his first big argument, uh, is, which is, uh, again, probably stands out, above, stands out above the others, is that the main source of economic growth is new ideas. Right, the main source of economic growth is new ideas. It's not buildings. It's not just having more people. Rather, it is taking available resources and doing something new with it. That's where most economic growth comes from. And new ideas come from people. Right? New ideas actually come from people. Right? And as a result, population and progress go hand in hand. Uh, when you have more people, you generally get more ideas. And when you get more ideas, you get more progress. Right? Uh, Simon also made a big point uh, that uh, we are not running out of resources. So he said the real, pr- the real price of food, energy, and minerals has been falling for over a century. So uh, Simon famously made a bet with Paul Ehrlich along these lines, saying, look, name any resources and any reasonably long time horizon, and I will bet you the price will fall. And, of course, uh, Julian Simon won. Uh, Ehrlich then said it was just a stupid bet Uh, (laughs) as well. Yeah. You, know, you, you could have done a different stupid bet. Oh, so all right. So uh, it is you know, contrary to what most people think. It is not true that we're running out of, running out of resources. Of course, every, t- every time there is a price spike, people are tempted to say the end is nigh. And yes, it was true for the last uh, you know, 100 years that things were getting cheaper, but that has all ended. And now it's nothing but doom and gloom from now on. Of course, every time they've said that so far, they've been wrong. Worth pointing out. Uh, and Simon's last point, uh, which I uh, gave him the title of his book, uh, The Ultimate Resource, is there is one thing that does reliably get more expensive over time, and that is human labor itself. So if we're running out of anything, it is people. All right, so these were all ideas that I learned at Cato, and they were an inspiration with me, and I kept the, they stayed with me. Now, it was only years later that I discovered the field that uh, Adam was touching upon, uh, behavioral genetics. This is a field that uses adoption and twin studies to measure the effects of nature and nurture. And uh, the more I read, the more I noticed an interesting parallel between what Julian Simon was saying and what behavioral geneticists were saying. So Simon argued that we underestimate the social benefits of making more people. Making more people is better for the world than most people realize. Uh, what behavioral genetics was telling us, or rather implying, uh, since they didn't often talk about uh, like what, what the results implied for human behavior, or you know, for, for what, what would be a good idea to do, uh, behavioral genetics implies that we underestimate the private benefits of making more people. We underestimate the private benefits of making more people. Now, uh, many people have said that uh, science proves that parents are miserable. Uh, This is not true. If you look at the actual data, you do not see misery in the data. Uh, Parents are far from miserable. But it is true that parents endure a lot of needless unhappiness. And this is especially true today. So why do I say needless? Uh, Because uh, contrary to almost everyone, uh, what we can call upbringing, or nurture, or parenting, and I'll use the three terms interchangeably, has little long run effect on children. There's little long-run effect of the way that you were brought up upon how you turn out. Now, obviously, it is true that traits run in families. So, if there's any trait, it is li- you know, that if that your family is above average in, it is likely that other people in that family will be above average in that trait as well. All right. So, traits do run in families, but the lesson that we get out of adoption and twin research is the reason is almost entirely what we can call heredity or nature or genes. Again, I use these three terms interchangeably. Right now, I want to uh, go over an inspirational example for me, uh, the Freedmans. Uh, let's see, many people in this room may know one or, one or more of the Friedmans or have met, met them. Of course, Milton uh, left us a few years ago, sadly. All right, so uh, first of all, you can take a look and see that there's considerable physical resemblance here. Uh, we have Milton Friedman, father of David Friedman, father of Patrick Friedman. They look quite a bit alike. Right, they look quite a bit alike, and if you actually meet, uh, if you actually have met them, you'll realize that their, their physical appearance is even more similar than these pictures would indicate, uh, because Milton Friedman w- uh, was extremely short. Right. So when you meet, when you, when you met him, uh, you know, like when, you, when he was alive, you said, "Wow, there's a really short guy." And even I, when I met him, I assumed that it was just because he grew up in a poor family and had inadequ- inadequate nutrition. Uh, but then when I met Pottery, he said, "Wow, Pottery is really short too," and Pottery was not malnourished. At uh, least, at least that it seems unlikely. All right, so physically, uh, the three of them are very similar. Uh, but then almost everyone would say, "Well, let's see, what, what, what about in terms of what they've done with their lives? What they've done with their lives is very similar. So of course, Milton Friedman was a uh, famous economist and libertarian, his son David Friedman, uh, and even, you know, an even more libertarian economist than his father. So David makes his father look like a socialist. And then uh, Pottery uh, not only uh, was you know, not a professional economist, but worked for Google's, Google's Prediction Markets Project. And uh, now he runs the C-Setting Institute, which is dedicated to bringing libertarian economics to the high seas. Okay. All right. Now, when you find out about these family resemblances, it is very natural to assume that, that, that uh, Potri Friedman learned the, family di- learned the family business over the dinner table. But when I mentioned this to Potri, he said that's totally wrong. Uh, Potri said that his parents divorced when he was a child, and his dad lived in another state. And he had no idea that this was the family business. And yet, according to Potri, he has always thought this way. He's had these ideas, and he was in the family business before he knew it was the family business. Now again, you may discount this and say that he's just rewriting history in order to make his story more interesting. I believe him. Anyway, whatever you say, at least the story should open your mind to the possibility that traits that we think of as being learned in the family actually have a genetic component. Okay. Now, how to tell nature from nurture? Uh, this is a very big question in my book. So here's the thing: in an ordinary family, you cannot. In an ordinary family, you cannot separate nature from nurture in right? an ordinary family. Siblings share half their genes. They also are raised by the same people. So how can you say why siblings turned out one way rather than another when there's these two forces that are pushing together in each case? Right? So when you look at ordinary families, uh, it is tempting to conclude that you just have to be agnostic. We will just never know. And if you realize that people have been arguing about nature versus nurture and why people turn out the way they do for thousands of years, it is tempting to say the lesson of history is that we must be agnostic. There are all these fools who thought they'd figured it out. uh, And yet, uh, they didn't figure out anything. They just begged the question and uh, made a bunch of question begging examples. So maybe we should be agnostic. Uh, but the answer is, uh, and, uh, figured out over the last, few, uh, the last four decades, is we don't actually have to be agnostic. Because while you know, studying ordinary families will never tell us what's going on, not all families are ordinary. So research is focused on two special kinds of families where nature and nurture don't work in the usual way in order to actually measure their separate effects. So first of all, families with adoptees are clearly special. Because if you are raised by people to whom you are not biologically related, then any family resemblance probably reflects nurture. Any family resemblance probably affects nurture. So if kids who are adopted by one kind of family turn out differently from kids who are adopted by another kind of family, that is a strong reason to think that, uh, that this is a nurture effect. And if the sample size is large enough, we're talking with thousands of people, then you'd have to be pretty dogmatic to say, there's still no evidence. You say, look, you know, how could there not be any evidence? You know, These kids are adopted. They don't share the genes of the family. And yet, uh, we see an effect, or possibly we don't see an effect. Okay, so that's families with adoptees. It's the case where it's easy to just understand how you can study these families and find out uh, what, what is the effect of nurture. Right? But also, families with twins turn out to be special too. At first glance, you might say, how are they special? Don't they have the same problem? Not quite, because there's actually two different kinds of twins. Uh, they're identical twins, like my first two sons, uh, who share 100% of their genes. Uh, then there are also fraternal twins, who, sh- who are no more related than ordinary siblings. So basically, they share half of their genes. Okay, fraternal twins can actually be of opposite genders, whereas identical twins uh, never are. All right, so if identical twins turn out to be more similar than fraternal twins, uh, this excess resemblance probably reflects nature. But even more interesting, interestingly, once we use the twin method in order to measure the effect of genes, we can actually then do a little extra math and find out how much room, if any, is left for parents to be increasing family resemblance. Right, so you not only can a twin study measure the effect of heredity, but, uh, but you can do a little bit of extra manipulation of the results and back out what the effect of nurture is from twin studies, too. All right, so over the last 40 years, this field of behavioral genetics has applied these methods to almost any human trait you can imagine. Okay, so uh, you know, there, you know, there have been other books written in this general area, uh, you know, probably the best, was Judith Harris's uh, The Nurture Assumption. But even she focused primarily on personality. She focused primarily on personality. But it turns out that there is research on almost any trait that parents want to affect. And in the case of personality, I'd say that a lot of parents might just object, I'm not trying to change my child's personality. And other parents aren't as well. So maybe that's why we don't see an effect. So what I wanted to do in this book is to cast a very wide net. Let's first make a list of all the kinds of things parents are hoping to inspire in their children, and then see what we actually get out of the data. All right. So the shocking findings of behavioral genetics. I'm just going to begin with a quick punchline, and then I'm going to go over some specific traits. All right, so the quick punchline of twin and adoption research is this. Heredity explains almost all family resemblance, especially in the long run, especially in the long run. All right, so identical twins aren't just a little bit more similar than fraternal twins. They're a lot more similar. Identical twins are a lot more similar than fraternal twins. Uh, secondly, adoptees, while they mildly resemble their adopting families when they're little kids, but most of the similarity vanishes by adulthood. So for example. Uh, if, a, if a kid is adopted by a high IQ family, when he's four years old, he will, ge- he will test above average in his IQ. However, by the time he's 12, that effect will generally have disappeared right? and will not return for the rest of his life. So there is some short-run effect, but it doesn't last. Right? And the slogan that I use to summarize all these results is this. Uh, contrary to popular opinion, kids are not like clay that parents mold for life. You don't take the clay, shape it into whatever shape you want it to be in, put it in the kiln, and make it that way forever. Instead, kids are a lot more like flexible plastic. Uh, They do respond to pressure, but they pop back to the original shape when the pressure is released. All right, so the parental wish list. So in the book, I try to organize uh, the uh, twin adoption research around what I call the parental wish list. So here's a list of the main traits that I think parents are trying to affect. All right, again, I'm not saying that there aren't any others, but I tried to cast a broad net and ask people, is there anything here that I'm missing? And this was the list of traits that uh, seemed to fit very well with what people were saying. All right, so here's the list. Uh, health. All right, parents want to improve their kids' health. Uh, you know, so many things that parents do, everything from taking your prenatal vitamins, to encouraging them to eat right, to trying to make them get exercise, to, uh, say, so making them brush their teeth. All right, so health, intelligence. Again, there are people who play Mozart for their babies uh, on the totally discredited theory that this will boost their child's IQ. Right? But they are trying to boost it. Right? And then they're all, they're, there's you know, reading the child in the womb, reading the child outside of the womb. Uh, there's trying to get your kids into enrichment classes, encouraging reading, uh, trying to get into a good neighborhood with good schools, all in the hope that you will boost your child's intelligence. Uh, happiness. Right? A lot of parents say, like I just want my child to be happy, and I'm trying to raise my child in a way which will lead to their happiness. Uh, For some parents, this means constantly encouraging you and telling you that you're special and super. Uh, For other parents, it means being really mean to you right now so that you become a success so then you can have true happiness as an adult. Different theories about what the right approach is, but still, most parents would say, yes, of course, I want my child to be happy. And then we got success. So uh, so here, in terms of what most parents are thinking about, first of all, there's educational success, uh, doing well in school. Right, getting into a good college, uh, getting a fancy degree, and of course, there's also career success. So there's income, there's career, there's uh, you know, there's you know, the status, the occupation, and so on. Okay, then uh, character. So by character, I mean traits that almost everyone can agree, moral traits that almost everyone can agree are good. So things like honesty, kindness, discipline, hard work. Right. So these are ones where it's not like there's a large faction of people saying it's terrible for kids to be honest. Okay, so these are traits that are generally agreed very widely from people from a very wide range of backgrounds to be good, and uh, you know people think that these are traits that should be encouraged in children. All right, uh, for the, I distinguish character from values. These are controversial moral uh, morals uh, moral teachings that you wish to impart to your children. So things like you know, religion or politics. Yes, yeah, so if you're Cato, you are probably trying to, and you have kids, you're probably trying to raise your kids to be libertarian. Right, I'm trying to teach you about liberty, I'm trying to raise you in the spirit of liberty so that you will one day become a libertarian like me. Okay, also includes things like family values. Includes things like uh, how many kids, your kids grow- will your kids have when they grow up? How many grandkids will they give you? All right. So some people raise their kids to limit their fertility, save the planet. Other people cheerleader, are cheerleaders, saying no, the world can never have to- never have enough people. Okay. So yeah, every now and then I say that, even though I don't think it's going to work. But just kidding, <laughs> to you know, say it ironically. All right? And then finally, appreciation, by which I mean how your p- how your kids feel about and remember you. All right. So the quality of the relationship. All right, so what do we get out of the research? Uh, First of all, uh, let's see, parents have uh, little or no long-run effect on their kids' health, intelligence, happiness, success, or character. So just to quickly go over some of the main research, uh, for health, uh, the the most objective measure of health is, of course, how long you live. Right, so you know, there isn't any, there's, as far as I know, there's no one saying that's socially constructed. Like, you know, who's to say whether someone lived to be 80? Right. So that's you know, a very well measured, very well measured trait. And countries like Denmark and Sweden have been keeping excellent records on this, as well as records on whether or not you're twins for over 100 years. So researchers have gone back, collected this data, and used it to measure how strong is the effect of genes on how long you live. Right, and they find that identical twins have more similar lifespans than fraternal twins. And in fact, the excess similarity of the identical twins is large enough that you can actually say that there's no additional room for parents to have boosted lifespan any further. And these are based upon uh, some of the very highest quality studies that, that have ever been done. Uh, there's also some, uh, you know, also very good, although not, you know, not, quite as, not, not quite as good studies of subjective health, how healthy people say they feel. There are studies based upon doctors' medical exams about how healthy you are. Uh, the, the result there is that there's no effect of parents upon your, how healthy a doctor says you are, although there does seem to be a small effect upon how healthy you say you are which could be that there's some unobserved uh, traits, uh, kinds of health that doctors don't observe, and parenting matters for those. Or it could just be that parents affect how optimistic you say your your answer is when someone asks you, how are you doing? Another possibility. Uh, For intelligence, Uh, here there is an important distinction that I mentioned before between short run and long run effects. So in the short run, there is very good evidence that upbringing does affect intelligence. So kids who, get adopt- uh, kids who get adopted by high IQ families have measurably higher IQs when they're little kids. The catch is that the effect doesn't last. By the time you're 12, it, it, it has disappeared, and it does not return later in life. Okay, so intelligence, which, you know, again, as, you know, as Charles Murray has told us, has a big effect on a lot of life outcomes. Looks like family resemblance in intelligence, which is quite strong, is driven entirely by genetics, and upbringing and does not change it. A happiness. Uh, here, there's actually one, one of the strongest studies done where you actually have a comparison of twins raised together and twins raised apart. The finding here is that identical twins who were separated when they were when they were little kids were at least as similar in their happiness as identical twins raised together. So if you take two identical twins, separate in the birth, have them raised by different families right, with everything that implies. So you're in a different neighborhood, different people are raising you. Uh, You have different friends, uh, different income, all these differences, and yet you will be at least as similar in your adult happiness as the identical twins who both went home to the same home. So quite strong. Uh, For success. Uh, For educational success, there is solid evidence that parents have a small effect on educational success. So in uh, Bruce Sasserdote's study of Korean orphans who got adopted by American families in the 60s and 70s, uh, what he found is that if an adoptee was adopted by a family where the mom had one extra year of education, the adoptee, by the time he's around 30, generally finished about five extra weeks of education. Which would mean the adopting mom would have to have about 10 extra years to boost the child by one year. Okay, so that is something, right, but uh, a lot less than what most people would have assumed. Right, uh, you can also see uh, you know, even smaller effects for uh, parents on income. So in the Korean adoption study, uh, you know, this, was, uh, this was one that was particularly interesting because back in the 60s and 70s, it was easier for low-income families to adopt. You only had to be, about 25, you only had to be 25% above the poverty line to be eligible. So there were a lot of kid, uh, Korean orphans that got adopted by relatively poor families. And yet, sacerdote found that the kids adopted by the very poorest families grew up to have the same average income as the kids adopted by the very richest families. Right, now, there's uh, been some more work done on this by a new professor at NYU, David Cesarini, uh, so he went and got tax records from Sweden, where you basically have no financial privacy. Researchers can find out how much money you, ever, you made during every year of your life, at least every year that you filed a tax return, right? And of course, they also have conscription. So he's got all kinds of other data. He knows what well, he knows what your twin type is. Is your twins? So what Cesarini found was that parents do have an effect on your income in your early twenties. So in your early 20s, it looks like maybe parents help you get get a good first job, or don't, or maybe that the values they teach you about success and ambition have some effect. However, by the time you're in your late 20s, these effects disappear, and they never return. So he's able to go and study the effect of upbringing on income in your 30s and 40s and 50s and finds nothing for all those later decades. So parents can go and put their hands on the scale early on, but it doesn't last. You know, essentially, your dad can get you a good first job, but if you can't, if you can't actually do the job, it's going to be very hard for him to get you a good second job or to get you promoted from your original job, which was good when you were 22. But when you're 28, it's no longer such a good job relative to your age. All right, uh, And then finally, character. So here I was mentioning you know, personality. It seems like parents probably you know, would say that they're not trying to change their kid's personality, but they are trying to train, change some traits that are captured by some of the personality traits that the study. So some you know, traits like kindness, compassion, uh, these fall under the umbrella that personality psychologists call agreeableness. Traits like honesty and work ethic fall under the trait that personality psychologists call conscientiousness. And both of these personality traits, like personality traits in general, uh, show a quite, you know, moderately strong effects of genes and uh, little or no effect of upbringing. All right. All right. Now, uh, so you know, like said, even family resemblance in income stems almost entirely from heredity. Right now, let's think about some counterexamples. Uh, there is very strong evidence that parents have a big, long-run effect on what I would call superficial values. What are superficial values? Well, uh, one superficial value is the religion you say you belong to. Right, so you raise a certain, if you're, if you're adopted by a family of Zoroastrians, it is likely that when you're an adult and you're given a form that says, write down your religion, you will write down Zoroastrian on the form. Right? And the same thing goes for politics. So if you're raised by a family of Republicans, it is quite likely that when you grow up, you will go and write down Republican on your voter registration, char- or voter registration card. Okay, so these, these again, these, these are genetically informed results based upon studies of twins. So it, this is not just saying that there's family resemblance. It's actually saying that the reason why there's family resemblance is not genes, right, but rather is the upbringing. Uh, but there is an important catch. If you go and look at deeper measures of politics and religion, then you see much smaller effects of upbringing and much larger effects of genes. So some deeper measures of religion would be, say, do you go to church? Do you actually participate in the religion? Do you, do you observe the rules of the religion? And also things about doctrine. Do you actually believe the doctrines of the religion? If you're raised by fundamentalists, are you a fundamentalist? If you're raised to believe the Bible is literally true, as an adult, do you still believe the Bible is literally true? Right, so uh, you know, so th- those, those are deeper measures for religion. And what we get out of the research is that genes have a much stronger effect on these deeper measures of how religious you feel in your heart and how religious and um, what kinds of religious activities you actually will do when you're on your, when you're grown up and and can uh, and can make a choice for yourself. Uh, they have a much bigger effect on you know, genes have a much bigger effect here than they do on just what religion you say you belong to, and upbringing's effect is considerably smaller and sometimes you don't see it at all. And then similarly for politics, right? So it's one thing to say that you belong to a party. It's another thing to actually vote that way. It's another thing to actually vote at all. It's another thing to vote the party line. And of course, there are also issue positions. So, what issues you say, or what positions you say that you have on the issues. And here again, we see fairly strong genetic effects upon uh, whether you vote, whether you vote the party line, as well as your specific issue views. Now, when I presented this at uh, Students for Liberty, I I had some extra time, so I went and showed various issue positions that libertarians would care about where where there's a strong genetic component. Uh, It's on some of the big ones, so things like your views on capitalism versus socialism, your views on immigration, your views on big government versus small government, and so on. So out of all the effects that parents do have on their kids, uh, the most meaningful one that I found, not the biggest, but the most meaningful, is that parents do have a moderate and lasting effect on appreciation. Right, that last one on the list. So, how their parents perceive and remember them. So, not only, so basically, the, you know, the way that these, these studies are done is they just ask people, you know, were your parents kind to you? Did they spend time with you? Right? Do they lose their do they lose their temper with you? And, uh, did your parents like you? Okay, so, there's uh, there's been a quite a bit of research along these lines as well. Right? And uh, first of all, you de- you definitely see an effect on people and their kids. But there's also one very good Swedish study. <coughs> that asked Swedes who, uh, Swedish twins in their 50s and 60s and 70s about, whether, you know, about how their parents treated them and how they felt about their parents. And the result was, as, if you, as long as you grew up in the same house, you had fairly similar views about what your parents were like. And on the other hand, if you grew up in a different household, then uh, while there were still some effective genes, there are some people who are b- genetically predisposed to see their parents through rose-colored glasses. And yet, there still is a big effect upon what the parents, th- who the parents that actually raised you were. All right, so all this stuff is basically a, a, a summary of everything out there in the academic literature. So when I wrote the book, I tried to cast as broad a net as possible and just find everything that had been written that was relevant to these topics. Right now, again, it's, it is, you know, certainly there have been things that have come out since I, book, since I wrote the book and possibly missed something. But I tried to go to a lot of different people you know, working in the area and find everything that I could so to cast a broad net. Uh, now, what you rarely see in this literature is anyone doing anything with it. So there's a lot of literature on the effects of parents on their kids, but almost no one who works in the area of behavioral genetics ever thinks about parenting. Almost never, no one ever thinks, "What does this mean for practical, for practical parenting?" Now there are some people who who, uh, who try, go and try to apply it to public policy, although that I would say is at least premature, right? Because uh, you know, like you know, as as we'll see, the range of these studies is, is a bit limited, so these you know, these studies are not so great at answering. Could, be, uh, could growing up in, a fa- in an extremely deprived family cause lifelong harm? Right? So the, you know, again, it may be that we can learn something from the research for that, but it does not immediately speak to it. The research does immediately speak to people to vaguely normal parents who are wondering how they should raise, raise their kids. Right? So I have more lessons in the book, but here are the two big ones. Uh, life lesson number one, lighten up. Uh, so uh, you know, just to be an economist about this, If you find out that you're you're making an investment that doesn't pay, if you find out that you're making loans to people who don't return the loans, what is the basic economic advice? Well, stop making the loans, at least until you figure out how to tell people who are going to pay you back from those who aren't going to pay you back. And if you can't figure that out, just sit on the money. At least you won't lose it. So stop making investments that don't pay. Now, this does not mean, contrary to the title of my Wall Street Journal op-ed, which I did not choose, by the way, uh, yeah, so in my, my Wall Street Journal op-ed, I originally called it How Twin Research Changed My Life. And the Wall Street Journal changed the title to Life Lessons of Twin Research, Have More Kids, Pay Less Attention to Them, <laughs> right. Right. which is not, doesn't describe my parenting style at all. I pay a lot of attention to my kids. Uh, the difference between the way that I raise my kids and the way that a lot of other parents I know raise their kids is I have fun with my kids. You know, we do things that we enjoy together. Right? And I don't do things for them that lead me to scream at them when they change the radio station. And I don't go and say, sure, I'll go and take you to this thing that's two hours away, every you know, like three days a week, and then get really angry and bitter that my child's putting such a big burden on, on me. Instead, if they ever asked me something like that, which they never would, because they don't like to do activities anyway, they're like me, <laughs> antisocial, they just want to sit and read their books. All right, <laughs> All right. in any case, uh, if you are doing something for your child as an investment, if it's something that you don't enjoy and your child doesn't enjoy, which once I became a parent, I discovered is remarkably common. Right, yeah, very often a parent will say, I can't do this, I have to go and take my kid to karate. And I'll ask, you know, like do you enjoy taking your child to karate? And they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, yeah, like I would really love to take my child to karate after a hard day's work. That sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? Uh, and then I ask, well, how about does your child, does your child enjoy karate? And like, no, he like screams every time we take him. All right, well, if you've got both of those facts and you also learn there isn't a long-run benefit, then you really do have a no-brainer. Right? Then that really is like loaning money to people who won't wait, who you know will not pay it back. Right, just stop. You will you will save yourself a lot of pain and suffering. Your child will be happier. You'll be happier. There's not a long run cost. There's no reason to stop doing. Uh, not not to, uh, no reason to keep doing it. So stop making investments that don't pay. i uh, rather focus focus on enjoying the journey, not on molding your child into your preferred shape. Right, and a related theme here is you know since there there do seem to be short run effects of parents on kids, if you are going to do something to change your child, you should be focused on the short run. So in writing this book, I discovered there is a whole literature on the effects of discipline. There are actually experiments, not on spanking, which of course you get sued if you try to do a spanking experiment. But there are experiments on, on, on clear, consistent, mild discipline for children, like putting them in the naughty corner. And the punchline of this research is that discipline works. The wisdom of ages, clear, consistent, uh, clear, consistent, mild discipline does improve the behavior noticeably of even kids who, who, who have uh, problem behavior. All right, so, if you do want to change your kid, focus on changing your child into a decent roommate today, rather than turning into, rather than trying to give him what he needs to be a Nobel Prize winner tomorrow, because that's not going to work. Okay, so focus on enjoying the journey, not enjoying the journey, not molding your child into your preferred shape. Now, the life lesson number two, which I say just comes out of very basic microeconomics, right, uh, is this: have more kids. Okay, so here I've got a demand curve. Uh, hopefully, uh, you've all seen one of these at some point, right? But if you haven't. Uh, it's not hard. So this just shows the demand for kids. So over here on the uh, on the bottom we have quantity of kids, right? Just like we'll sometimes write quantity of bread, quantity of cars, quantity of kids. On the uh, see, on the vertical axis, we have price of kids, which includes, of course, not just financial cost, but effort cost, right? The amount, the whole emotional, fi- emotional, and financial sacrifice that are involved. Right? So here we have a demand curve, and what I show here are just two different points on the graph. So one is the optimal number of kids when there are large nurture effects. If the only way to get the kinds of kids that you want is to bend over backwards and suffer and sacrifice, then it's understandable if you don't want to have a lot. Right? And if so, if the standard view is true, then it makes sense that people would want to have small families. On the other hand, if the science that I'm describing is accurate, it makes sense to want to have more kids because you can get the kinds of kids you want with considerably less effort. Right? So move along your demand curve. The kids that you want are cheaper, the kids you want are cheaper than you think, so stock up. Right now, a lot of people look at this and this thing, this is just a crazy economist going and forcing the entire world into the only tool that he you know, into the only tool that he knows. So you know, if you the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, so here'll say that there was a great piece by a non-economist uh, you know about a month ago on the theme of soccer as contraception. Soccer as contraception. And the idea of the piece was you know, it was a mom saying, look, we've already got two kids right now, they're both in soccer. They both do, do a bunch of practices every week. They both, they both have their games. We're already exhausted with the, current soccer, with the current amount of soccer that our kids are involved in. Now we're thinking about having a third child. And then they say, oh, well, that sounds good. But that would mean a third soccer league, third set of practices, third set of games. Say, look, we just can't do it. It's just too hard. And then, the, and then the mom briefly says, well, what about not having a kid and then not enrolling him in soccer? And she immediately rejects it, saying, no, no, no. Then the child will be obese, won't learn team spirit, will be a loser. So we can't do that. So all I'm doing is reversing your reasoning. I'm saying, look, your argument is great until the last part where you say that you have to do soccer. You don't have to do soccer. There's a lot of other stuff you don't want to do that you don't have to do. Not only you don't have to do it, you can stop doing it guilt free. Stop doing it guilt free because you're not hurting your child. You're not hurting your child's future. And at least in a lot of cases, you're probably not even hurting your child's present because a lot of kids don't want to do the stuff that you're making them do anyway. All right, now let me give you a few caveats. Uh, so, these, these are, you know, there are more in the book, but uh, these are the main ones that, that often come up. So, I just want to be clear on these. So, the biggest one of all what researchers find depends on where they look. Right, it's an obvious point, but uh, nevertheless, we're saying what researchers find depends upon where they look. So, all adoption twin studies that I am aware of, I think I think it's fair to say 100%, are done in the first world. That Korean adoption study involved kids who were born in the third world but then moved to the first world. So, I'll still count that as a study that was done in the first world. And, uh, and and you know, even in the first world, there are as far as any, I don't know of any of any major Asian major, major study of this kind that was done in any Asian country either. Okay, so uh, studies like this are very uh, you know there's a lot of the, a lot of them for the United States for Australia and there's all, there's, there's particularly good ones done for Scandinavia so you know, nor, you know Norway Denmark uh, you, know, you know Sweden of course Finland right and then there's some smaller scale studies for so, you know for Canada Germany so on. Okay, so we're not talking about uh, results that work over the entire surface of the Earth. Right? Uh, but nevertheless, these are results that do seem perfectly fine for people who are from these countries. Right? And again, most people here probably are, or at least are going to be raising their kids in a way s- a typical of, of First World countries, even if they're not in the First World themselves. Okay? So you know, to put it simply, twin adoption studies never include kids raised by wolves. There are no wolf children in the data. Right? And they don't include any kids aband- abandoned in Haiti. Right, for all we know from adoption and twin research, it is possible that being abandoned in Haiti would be terrible. And there I would definitely fall back on common sense and say yeah, that seems extremely likely. Right, uh, when, you see, when you hear about Madonna trying to adopt a child from Malawi, she's trying to trying to adopt a four a five-year-old girl from an orphanage in a country where thirteen percent of five-year-olds don't survive to the or thirteen percent of children don't survive to the age of five. Okay. And again, you know, like, you know, the idea that, that that infant mortality is in, to any significant degree, significant degree genetic is absurd. If you just go and bring the kids from the orphanages to a country where they're rich and safe and well-fed, then they have, a nor- they, and they have an infant mortality rate that is typical of the First World, which is you know, much smaller than 13%. Uh, thank God. Right. So what is, a go- you know, what is a good way to interpret the results and decide what it actually is tell- really telling you? Well, here's my rule of thumb. If an adoption agency would consider the parents fit to adopt, then they're good enough. Then you're in this wide range of parenting styles that are all about equally good. So basically imagine an adoption agency coming to your home doing the home study, would they say you're okay? If they would say yes, then the results apply to you. If they would say no, then maybe they don't, right? So this does not mean that if the, the adoption agency says that you are a bit below the threshold that you would mess your child up, but it doesn't mean there at least there's a question. Right? But the data can give us very clear answers on what can we say about the effects of growing up in some vaguely normal family. And there, the effects are quite small. Okay? And then finally, I've had a running argument with Will Wilkinson about this book. And he's, all, and he's been very annoyed at me for a very long time. And I, I continue to be puzzled, because I've tried to say this many times. But look, if your demand for kids' curve is vertical at quantity equals zero. Right? So if you want zero children, regardless of price, I'm not pushing you around, I'm not nagging you, I'm not pressuring you, I'm just presenting an opportunity. Right? If your demand for kids is zero at all prices, go in peace. I have no objection, I'm not going to harass you, I don't want to fight. I'm just pointing out an opportunity, which would be interesting to a lot of people who are interested in having kids. Right? And that's all I'm saying. Right? Now fortunately for me, uh, you know, over 80% of the population does have kids, suggesting that a lot of people are interested. Right? And out of the people who don't have kids, at least a decent fraction don't do it because the sacrifice seems too big, not because they just think the kids are disgusting, <laughs> right? or boring, or, or whatever it is, right? whatever, whatever. You know. so, again, if you're, you know, so if your objection to kids is, why would anyone want them? They just seem boring to me. I'd say, All right, well, I don't have that much to tell you then. Uh, you, know, you can still buy the, buy the book and find out why you turned out the way that you did. Right? <laughs> you know, you would still be interested in nature and nurture, even if you have no interest in having children. But I, mean, it's, I can understand why the book would be less interesting, less interesting to you if the idea of having kids has zero appeal to you. Or on the other hand, if the idea of kids has some appeal to you, but you are worried about the sacrifice, then I say that well, you know, this information is actually useful to you. Right, now finally, just to bring this back to uh, what this has to do with Cato. Well, Julian Simon's arguments were very convenient back in the 70s and 80s when libertarians, you know, very convenient for libertarians back when statists were worried about overpopulation. Right? And nowadays, it's getting harder to actually remember that this was so. But in the 70s and 80s, uh, there were people saying that overpopulation was going to destroy us and was going to lead to mass starvation and other horrible effects. Right? So Simon's arguments were very convenient back then. Because back then, we could say, hey, not only are you guys coercive and evil, but you're also using coercion and evil for an, e- for an end that is stupid and wrong. You, you're, stop, you're trying to force people to not do something that is good. What's wrong with you? Right, so very convenient argument back then. Uh, but what about now? So now birth rates have fallen considerably. They're now below replacement in almost all first world countries. Right, so at this point, uh, you could use Simon's pro-population arguments to rationalize uh, coercive natalism. Right? You could actually uh, take a look at Julian Simon and say, yeah, I love you Cato guys, I love your hero, Julian Simon, and now I'm going to use him to rationalize a big government program to get our birth, our, our birth rate up. Thanks for helping. Right? Uh, that could be done. Right? But uh, what I argue in this month's Cato Unbound is there are promising libertarian alternatives. Uh, so, of course, one alternative, if you believe in the value of population, is just liberalize immigration, which I actually think is the most important public policy issue on earth. Right, because the labor market is 70% of the economy, right, and, uh, the, and the amount and the immigration restrictions are extremely strict. Right? The amount of number of people who come here relative to the number that, co- that want to come here uh, is very tiny. Okay, so, And this would, this would be a big benefit. Now, if you are a Julian Simon believer, you might, uh, might at first say, this is kind of like a beggar your neighbor policy. We're going to go and steal your population from you. Uh, but when you realize that the population that we steal will be a lot more productive here, and they'll send remittances home, uh, really is better for the world if productive people are here rather than their home countries. Even though more population is good, uh, so that's one possibility. I'm all in favor of this, of course. Yes, you know, I'm saying I feel more passionately about immigration than about any other policy issue. All right. Uh, so that's one. Uh, another one that I talk about in Cato Unbound is tax credit for tax credits for kids. So not actually you know like subsidies, but rather letting you keep more of your own money if you have children. Right now, what's interesting about this is uh, you know, one of the you know, one, you know, probably one of the most wishful thinking arguments for cutting taxes that uh, that you know, the free market people are associated with is the government can raise revenue by cutting taxes. Right, so saying that we're actually to the right of the maximum of the Laffer curve, and for almost every tax that's been studied, it's been found this is not true. In general, you cannot increase revenue by cutting taxes. However, uh, f- tax credits for kids. Uh, based upon the best research that's been done, it really does look like the government can raise more money if they reduce taxes on people who have kids. How can this be? Well, here's the catch: we have to consider your, the taxes the child will pay over its entire lifetime. Okay, so we're doing an intertemporal budget constraint. We're looking at how does um, well, you know, what is the effect of the government's long-term budget constraint if you have one more child? Now, based upon standard estimates of what's called the fiscal externality, the uh, excess of taxes that a child will pay over his lifetime over, ben- over benefits he will consume, it uh, turns out that's quite, that's quite substantial in the, in the benchmark of about $100,000. And on the other hand, based upon estimates of how much of a one-time cash bonus do you need to pay people, or, 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 specific, or specifically, how much of a, tax, of a one-time tax reduction do you need to give people to induce them to have one more child, turns out to be fairly modest. Okay, so there was a very good study of baby bonuses baby bonuses in Quebec that took advantage of a number of uh, you know, interesting points of natural variation. So basically, it looks like tax credits for having kids are not, not only will they encourage people to have more kids with all the benefits that Julian Simon talked about, but they actually are a fiscal free lunch. Right? It will improve our future fiscal situation if we cut taxes now, leading to larger populations so there's more people to pay the taxes that we have to be paying in the future. All right now the last one, which is the focus of my book, is education and persuasion. So here's the thing, if my arguments are right, then if we want people to have more kids, we don't have to just beg them to do it for the greater good, which in my experience is about as helpful as arguing with a brick wall. All right, so yes, we could go and say, look, there's all these, you know, look at Julian Simon. It would be great for the world if you had more kids, maybe it'd be another Einstein. And yet an exhausted parent might say, Yeah, that's great for the world, but what does that do for me? Eh, whatever. OK, so, uh, so these, but if these arguments are right, we don't have to just go and appeal to altruism. All we really need to do in order to improve our birth rate is to popularize the science. Just tell people the facts and, and credibly convince them the facts are so. Right, so just to convince people that being a great parent really is less work and more fun than people think, which I think we can safely say that science does show. So I see this as more analogous to something like publicizing the facts about the health risks of smoking, which of course did not instantaneously reduce smoking rates, and yet over the long run has probably had an enormous effect on smoking. Right? And if you were a libertarian in the 50s, you know, first looking at the science, someone might have said, you know, you know, tell me what policymakers can do in order to get smoking down. I guess you could say, how about let's, let's cut tobacco subsidies. But Anyway, <laughs> yes, you could say that. But at the time, I think a very reasonable answer would have been education and persuasion. And people probably would have scoffed at you and said, education and persuasion, that'll never work. And yet, you know, we do it for, 30, for 40 years, it works. Right? There really is a change. Right? And I see my book as one small part of what I hope will be a large-scale cultural shift in changing people's minds about the responsible, decent way to raise children so that having children will, will seem like a smaller burden than it does today. Now, this is a very happy coincidence, and especially for libertarians. Especially if, first of all, you oppose most government action. And second of all, when there's things that government could stop doing, like stop keeping out immigrants or stop collecting tax, uh, so many taxes from people who have more kids, uh, you know, if, you, like, if you're a libertarian, you're probably pessimistic that the government will stop doing the things it should stop doing. Okay, so this is, turns out to be a very happy coincidence, especially for libertarians. So while education and persuasion are slow, uh, they are not as slow as waiting around for governments to do the right thing. So I will leave it there. Uh, So Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, on sale now from Basic Books.
0: Thank you, Brian. And I don't know if you want to use a podium. Feel free to sit there or come up here, whichever you'd be more comfortable with. Why don't I sit here? Uh,
2: When you accept uh, the role of commenting on a book, you you do so on the assumption that you can find some things to argue with in it, because otherwise it's going to be very boring. And I assume that there would be in... uh, the literature that Brian was covering, which I was also familiar with. But in fact, in the book, even though he didn't uh, mention a lot of these uh, during his presentation, uh, he really <laughs> said all the things uh, that I would have said uh, in, uh, as, as caveats to his findings. Uh, first point is this. There is no countervailing literature out there that says anything different from what Brian just said about the relative roles of nature and nurture. Uh, on these various outcomes. It's it's very one-sided in that regard. Uh, I, I would, however, point out that Brian was talking about what in the terminology is called the shared environment. And the shared environment is what those things that parents directly, uh, what goes into upbringing, as we think of upbringing. There's the non-shared environment, uh, which does have a significant role. So for the different uh, attributes he's talking about, you may have heritabilities that range from what? What's a good range to say of the heritabilities of these uh, various characteristics?
1: Point, point 0.3 to 0.8?
2: Yeah, well, right, point 0.3 to point 0.8. Well, all of those leave a from, from a large to a significant role for uh, the non-shared environment. Of course, the, the thing about the non-shared environment is it's not manipulable uh, systematically because we don't understand the non-shared environment very well. But you shouldn't interpret what Brian said as saying it's all heritable. He's saying that you take a look at what's heritable versus the kinds of things that, that parents think of as their upbringing, and there's a big imbalance there. Uh, in the book, he makes a point, I guess it's from Harris's book uh, that you quote, uh, where he says, this doesn't mean you shouldn't be good to your kids and 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 do all of the right things in terms of your children uh, interacting with them day to day. And the analogy that Harris used, and, and Brian endorsed, and I do too, is you are not good to your spouse because of the changes you will see in your spouse 20 years later. You're good to your spouse because that's part of life as you're living it, and your relationships with your kids as you're living them make it very important to have uh, the behaviors that mostly go into good upbringing uh, continue, even though you know there's not going to be any long t- long-term effects. I also uh, was glad to hear him emphasize that there are short-run effects that are important Uh, Because anyone who has watched a parent with a brat (laughs) knows just saying to yourself, why are you doing this to your child? Because the fact is they may not be brats all their lives, but, boy, is it unpleasant not only for them, I think, and for their parents, but also unpleasant for the people around them. Uh, You can teach your children manners when they are young, and that's a really good thing to do. And there are other short-run uh, outcomes you can have that I think are, are definitely non-trivial. Let, let me get th- though to the issue of, well, is it really true that it makes that little difference what parents do? And the answer is, and I, I, this is not something where I'm disagreeing with what Brian said in the book, I'm saying here are some things he did not talk about uh, extensively in the book, and, and in some cases, not at all. I would sum them up and say there is an asymmetry. It is fairly easy to be a good enough parent. And once you are a good enough parent, and I think his analogy, if the adoption agency would approve you, you're probably good enough. You, you can't really twiddle with the outcomes very much. You can't jack up the IQ by having a really neat mobile over the baby's bed. Uh, you, can't, uh, you, know, you can't instill uh, the kinds of character values uh, in the absence of a personality that will absorb those. But parents can screw kids up. Uh, At the extremes, we know, and nobody would argue with this, you lock a child who's a toddler into a closet for 24 hours a day for weeks on end, you are going to make a huge environmental difference in that child's life prospects. But you don't have to go nearly that far. We have lots of ways in which we can create life outcomes for large samples of children in which it is very unequivocally definitely true that parental decisions made a difference to how those kids turned out. For example, get a divorce. This is not... By the way, I'm saying this as a man who got a divorce when he had two children ages 5 and 10. All right? um, and they turned out fine. But if you have a 1,000 kids... Uh, who have been children of divorce and a 1,000 kids who have lived and grown up with intact biological parent families, married families, there will be significant differences on virtually every kind of life outcome you can think of, from mental health to employability to drug use to the probability of dropping out of school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You want to even be worse to your kids? Don't get married in the first place. Uh, There is an ordering of the outcomes for children, which is the best outcomes are for two-parent intact biological parent families, married families. The next best is children born up in divorce. Doesn't make much difference, by the way, if um, the mother remarries or the father remarries. Step-parents don't do much good. They don't do much harm statistically either, but they don't do much good. And by far the worst outcomes come from uh, children of never married women. And these are parental behaviors that have have changed the the life chances of their children, and these need to be recognized for what they are. Um, There are also other things which I am convinced uh, have effects that have not been studied in the literature, but let me just give you an example. If you are a family, let's say, that has Upper middle class income. Suppose you live in McLean, Virginia, with all that goes with living in McLean, Virginia, and the schools that are there and the other students that are there. Okay. Suppose you take the same parents, same income, uh, but they go out and they live in Burkittsville, Maryland, population 170, uh, in a middle, in a blue collar working class of uh, agricultural uh, area, uh, those children are going to have very different life experiences because of the choices their parents made. And I am not saying which will be better or worse, but I will say for an absolute definite unequivocal fact that when your children get to be 22 years old, or 18 years old, let's say, and have gone through high school, those who have gone to school in uh, McLean at a very good private school or at the McLean public schools uh, will have had a very, very different range of, of people that they have known from the same age young person who has spent uh, his educational lifetime in a blue-collar uh, agricultural environment. Those are decisions that parents can make that will have a big effect on, on their children's ex- life experiences that they take to adulthood. I've given these as big differences, sort of binary, do you get married, don't you get married. Uh, but in fact, I think as we learn more about the nature of the interaction between what we call the non-shared environment and, um, and, and genes, we're going to see that it's not binary. Uh, let, me, let me use the example of the effect of having a father in the house. Uh, there are all sorts of effects that we know what goes on in the black box. Uh, if you have a biological father who is helping to raise the child, uh, with little girls, one great big obvious effect, for example, is that assuming that the father is uh, just a good enough father, an ordinarily affectionate, uh, responsible father, uh, that there's a big protective effect when that young woman starts to approach adolescence because the father serves as the first boyfriend, in effect. The, 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 the girl, 12, 13, 14 years old, does not yearn for an intimate relationship with males the same way she does if she's never had a father. and uh, And also, there is a more practical environmental effect, which is the girl can always say to the boy, my father would kill me, uh, which has an additional uh, impact on behaviors. Uh, Yes. And, And similarly with little boys, everybody in this room who has had both little girls and little boys, I think, is going to understand what I'm saying, if you're a father especially. But if you're a mother, you've watched this go on, too. The little girls love their daddies no matter what, virtually. The little boys watch their daddies. The little boys are constantly saying, well, this is how a grown-up male is supposed to behave. And so it's not just being married, not being married. I think that as you look at fathers who are on the continuum from providing a, a uh, role model for little boys, you will see, as, this, as the research gets more uh, sophisticated, uh, effects of upbringing, as it were, uh, on life outcomes, because whereas the behavioral genetics literature has grown very rapidly and is very large, we still are in the first couple of decades of serious work on this, and we are just beginning to understand genetics. So as time goes on, I think that there will be able to more clearly specify what difference it does make to, uh, with your parental choices, and that difference will not be trivial. However, having said all that, let me point out something that these effects that you have with the specific examples I gave on little girls being the first boyfriend and a little boys being the role model, it's not because of anything you're doing as a parent. It's not that you're lecturing your little boy on how he has to learn how to get up and go to work every day that makes a difference. It's the fact that you are getting up and going to work every day that makes the difference in how he sees what he should do as an adult male. So once again, in effect, what Brian is saying even applies in these cases. Our effects as we deliberately act as upbringers and nurturers of our children, (laughs) they aren't that big, except, except, and I will close with this. Um, When I was 17 years old and I was, uh, I guess, a senior in high school, I had a friend who uh, embezzled a whole lot of clothes from the clothing store where he worked. And he passed these out to his friends. He didn't didn't tell us specifically where he got the clothes. But, um, you know, we weren't stupid, and we knew, why is he passing out sweaters and things? Well, one day my mother uh, discovered a sweater in my chest of drawers that she had not purchased, and she knew I had not purchased, and she inquired of me where I had gotten it. And I told her, um, now, I'm 17 years old, so I am not at supposedly that plastic age uh, that toddlers are at. Um, my mother flew into, it was more than a rage. It was a complete catastrophe, and I had basically ruined myself in her eyes. And uh, on one level, that shouldn't have had any effect. My character was already fully formed. It also remains true that all of the things that I had been taught about honesty and that suddenly were reified, not as abstractions, but as a passionately held code. Now, I'm not saying with certainty as a social scientist that that changed my level of honesty for the rest of my life, but boy, have I sure remembered it for the rest of my life. And so... There remains that aspect of parenting which remains mysterious. And as a, someone who joins with Brian in welcoming all this research and essentially agreeing with everything he said, I still think with wonder and fondness of that mysterious aspect of being a parent. Thank you.
1: I'm sorry, can I, can I have a full to respond? Uh, absolutely. All right.
0: I, I was just going to stand up yep. here to take questions after you respond.
1: Uh, so I'm very glad to find that we do have something to disagree about. <laughs> um, you know, p- minor disagreements. I would say there is a large other literature that does disagree with me. It's literature that acts as if genetics don't exist and then just correlates family outcomes with, with child outcomes and then says that's the reason why.
2: They aren't serious. Yes. That's right, not but, serious. But they
1: do line. exist. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it, it is out there, so I don't you know. Uh, it, you know, so what I, what I agree with Charles is that there's no other literature that admits the genetics is a potential confounding variable that says something very different. Uh, now, you know, you know, my bigger dis- disagreement with Charles is this. So consider, uh, right now about 40% of marriages end in divorce, and about 40% of kids are born out of wedlock. So if what Charles were saying were right about divorce and, uh, s- and, uh, divorce and single motherhood actually really do mess kids up badly, then... Uh, this would actually; these results would actually apply to a minority of the population. Uh, but I think that Charles is actually giving too much credit to nurture here, because uh, you, know, you know the studies that Charles is talking about, as far as I understand, they, these are not twin or adoption studies. These are just looking at uh, you know, natural samples, comparing kids whose parents' families are intact to ones where the parent where uh, the parents are divorced, to ones where the father is not around. Uh, but of course, there are uh, you know, first of all, you know, we ha- we have specific genetic evidence that genes affect whether genes affect marriage, right? Genes affect divorce, right? Right? Genes genes affect whether or not you're having premarital sex, right? So there's genetic effects on all of these, right? Uh, Which were independent verification. So at least a minimum, we should consider the possibility that what's really going on here is not that children who divorce are damaged by the divorce, but rather the kind of people who get divorced have more trouble getting along with others. They're more impulsive. They're more responsible. No, 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 no offense to Charles. I know, Char- you know Charles is very responsible, and I, I assume not very impulsive. Uh, but nevertheless, these are the kinds of traits that lead to divorce, right? And we know these personality traits are genetic uh, to to a, to a significant degree. So a simple story that, that, that you could tell that uh, that winds up sa- that says that divorce does not actually mess kids up, is that the kinds of parents who uh, the kinds of parents who get div- get divorced, are more quarrelsome and more impulsive, their kids are more quarrelsome and more impulsive and then have worse life outcomes, right? And the same thing goes as well for single motherhood, uh, you know the, the pe- people who have ki- who have people who have kids out of wedlock are not a random sample of the population, it doesn't just happen, right? Uh, again, of course there is some element of luck here. Right? You know, there's plenty of people who are, who, are, who are alive just because their parents forgot to use birth control. Right? And, you know, it was just an accident. However, uh, there, are some st- you know, there are some people who are more likely to have a child out of wedlock than others. Right? There's some people who are more likely to not use birth control uh, on an impulse, others who are less likely to not use birth control on an impulse. And again, I think it is, at least, uh, it is more than plausible that genetics actually explains these patterns in the population that Charles is talking about. Uh, which, again, you know, like, like if Charles were right, then I really think he should disagree quite strongly with a lot of my book because my results, rather than applying to, say, 80% of the population, might only be applying to, say, 40%. And I really should have had sections of the book saying, don't get divorced and, get, and make sure you have, get married before you have kids. And while I do think that it is more pleasant for children to grow up with their family intact, and I think that my kids really like having me around, but n- <laughs> nevertheless... I am not convinced that, that, that their life outcomes, will, that their life outcomes would, would, would be different as a causal result if that had not happened. Well, let me persuade uh, you. Yes. Oh, and just one more thing. And so, and, and Harris the Nurture Assumption does an interesting comparison between kids, who, uh, between kids whose parents never married versus ones where the dad was killed in an accident. And he finds that if your dad was killed in an accident, you still do fine, which suggests it's not so much having the father around as rather the kind of father that your father was.
2: The, the latter is true, uh, which is kind of depressing for uh, guys because... Uh, We don't actually uh, have to do anything or even be alive. We just have to be someone of whom our wife can say your father would be very proud of you or your father would be very disappointed in you, and that seems to be good enough. Um, The the longitudinal data uh, pose, I think, a problem to your uh, dismissal of the importance of family structure. I am not saying that single mothers are a randomly selected population, nor that divorced parents are. But you see, we have had a longitudinal experience whereby the out of wedlock birth ratio in 1960 was in single digits, uh, and now it's 40%. And so you have had a case back in 1960 where a whole bunch of people who are now being single mothers were not being single mothers. And, you, and when you see that the outcomes and the differential outcomes have not been a function of, uh, of self-selection in this regard, they have, well, let, me, let me restate it, if you have in effect a natural experiment here, whereby you can go back and identify or could theoretically identify a whole bunch of women back in 1960 who now we would predict to be single women and you can say well what happened to their children then uh, it, it, the fact that we have gone from an out of birth law, well, law ratio of 6, 7, 8% to 40% is not because there's been a change in genes in the last 50 years
0: I'd uh, like to go to the audience uh, in just a second but um. I, I do find that this whole discussion something that I thought about the, the entire time I was reading the book, and in particular, um, what is in that non-shared environment and what we don't know about the differences between families that might be impacting children long-term but wash out in the average and uh, with the only measurement being socioeconomic status in many cases in the behavioral genetics literature, what do we know about the differences between families that might have an effect beyond those. Uh, because when I think about parenting, I think about something much more personal, uh, like Charles was saying, much more, more much more specific to the relationship between a specific parent, whether it's the father or the mother and a specific child, which would be, my understanding is, uh, captured in the non-shared environment, not in the shared environment. Um, and, 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 and so I'd, I was wondering if you could discuss that a bit and, and what it doesn't capture in what might have an effect in terms of parenting in the colloquial sense, but not parenting or nurture in the sense of shared environment in the behavioral genetics literature?
1: Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. So here's the thing about uh, adoption twin studies. They don't measure, say, socioeconomic status, act as if that's environment, and then use that to break stuff. Instead, what they do is see if kids who are adopted, uh, basically compare, say, adoptees to the biological children of the parents that are raising them, or you're comparing similarity between fraternal and identical twins and then backing out an effect family. So basically, when, the, when, uh, when a twin or adoption study reports an effect uh, family environment, it is including all direct and indirect effects. So for example, if, say, a, a kid gets adopted by a rich family and this leads them to grow up in a rich neighborhood and rich neighborhoods lead to good things, then an adoption study would say that growing up in a rich family helps you, right? because the family gets credit for any indirect effect, however, however, however distant. Or similarly, this is not you know, like adoption studies. Don't say that parents don't affect smoking, but peers do. Therefore, therefore, parents can affect their kids' smoking through uh, through their peers. Rather, if an adoption study finds no effect of smoking, it's saying that parents don't directly affect smoking. They don't indirectly affect it by getting better by getting different peers for their kids. So it's actually ruling out a lot more than people realize. And the same thing goes for genetics. So when you see that there's a genetic effect uh, effect of genes on income, this could mean that say genes affect intelligence and intelligence affects income. It could mean genes, affects, genes affect looks and looks affect income. It could be genes affect ambition or greed, and ambition and greed affect income. So it's ca- they're casting a very broad net, counting all the direct and indirect effects you could possibly get. So then what's left? Well, um, you know, so you know, things that are left. We, you know, if, if parents just threw a die, and if the die came out high, they favored one sibling and, 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 and disfavored the other one, that, that would not be picked out, but pick, picked out by a Twitter adoption study. So basically, you know, like sibling favoritism that is, not, that is not itself a product of the way the child is acting. Okay, now, of course, we often see that parents are nicer to kids who are, uh, who are more successful, but it would, be v- it would be premature to think that the better treatment caused the success. There's another story where parents get along better with children who are model children and are not frustrated with them and are happy with their performance, and then, they, and then they're nicer to them, whereas children who, who misbehave, parents yell at them more, but it's caused by the child misbehaving at least, least a possibility uh, yeah.
0: what I was curious about is is whether whether uh, or or what the literature says about whether or not uh, a role uh, uh, a father who's a good role model um, uh, whether that if it had an impact mm-hmm. would be picked up in these studies versus a father same socioeconomic status same neighborhood who was actually a poor sure. role model, but they had otherwise the same characteristics um, mm-hmm. Would those kind of personal and and, and kind of fi- more fine grained actual parenting aspects be picked up by?
1: I mean, it should be as long, being a good, as long as being a good father actually is objective enough that you're a good father for all your children, or at least if you're a good father for one child, you're likely to be good, a good father for the other children, and also it requires that the, that the good fathering affects some outcome that we've measured. So if good, outcome affects, uh, good, parent, good fathering affects an outcome we haven't measured, then I just say that we don't know. Okay, by the way, in terms of non-shared environment, non-shared environment could also be explained with well, the kinds of things that Charles is talking about. Because it's not just that parents are raising their kids differently right now, but other parents are, other parents than you are raising their kids differently now than they used to. So it could very well be that the reason why, say, kids who grow up in neighborhoods where, uh, where, where no one has a father are doing poorly. It's not that the problem that they, that they personally lack a father, but rather that they're growing up in a, in a society where a lot of kids don't have fathers. So it could, it could be that there's no effect of your parenting on your own child, you know, or at least no, you know, no, the effect is so small you don't notice it, even though there's a small effect on all kinds of people. So that could be what's going on too. It's possible.
0: Sorry, I'm, I'm. I'm still. I hate to belabor this. I'm still confused. Mm-hmm. And all oh, will go to the questions. But if we don't measure the, those differences between families, how can we know whether that has an impact?
1: Ah, uh, well, we yeah, said. So couldn't if, they wash? I so mean Here's what we do. We look and see if there's a correlation of outcome between adoptees and by and and uh, and unre-, you know, and unrelated kids raised in the same house. So but if you know, so, if be if good fathers say increase their sh- kids' educational success or treat
0: that individual yes. family though. Yes. Yes. And whether that, but not that characteristic of. Families or parenting in general. Right, right. So,
1: in, in general, the, you know, the whole idea of these studies is they don't measure any specific trait because they want to be agnostic about what could possibly matter. They want us to say anything can matter. We're going to measure it all and see whether, it ma- see whether all stuff together matters.
0: I'll, I'll continue uh, afterwards because I'm uh, getting stuck. At, uh, gentleman right there in the green jacket.
3: Uh, Well, it it seems to me, uh, just a a quick observation first, uh, and then a question about your demand curve. Uh, It seems to me that even if you don't accept Charles Murray's uh, very powerful points about single parenthood, and I certainly do, uh, that at some level you must accept the fact that parents can mess up kids locking them in the closet, uh, uh, one example that Mr. Murray gave. Uh, Another that is much more common in in, uh, a great deal of the world, of course, is prolonged uh, undernutrition and malnutrition of infants and young children. That being so, it seems to me the sweeping generalizations in your early slides uh, go way, way overboard uh, to say that that parents and parenting have (laughs) Uh, little effect or not very much effect uh, uh, on ultimate outcomes. If you starve the kid, believe me, you're going to have an effect on on the outcome. Um, uh, On a a lighter note, uh, your demand curve uh, suggestion seemed to be that uh, people would want to have more kids uh, if they just stopped taking them to karate class and and, to soccer matches. Uh, But uh, I I assume that it's true that 10 children non-soccer are still more trouble and more work than one or two children non-soccer. Your only uh, efficiency is your cost is the price per child, not the total price. And isn't the total price more important than the price per child?
1: So I think I agree with almost everything you said. Again, I, I, I tried to be as clear as possible, saying, look, I'm not saying that abandoning a child in Haiti won't hurt him. I'm not saying that blocking him in a closet won't hurt him. I'm not saying malnutrition doesn't hurt. What I'm talking about are you know, vaguely normal families in first world countries. So I tried to have that on the caveat slide. Again, here's the thing. I'm marketing this as, you know, this is a parenting book. It's not an international development book. It's not saying that there's nothing to worry about uh, with, chi- with child malnutrition. It's just, for different, it's just written for a different audience. In terms of the demand curve... Uh, yes, I mean it's true that having ten kids is well, uh, ten kids with, with uh, low with low investment is uh, more work than having one child with a lot of investment. Uh, you know, like you know, so all, all all I'm saying is that the demand curve has a negative slope, right? And, uh, and the fact that the price per child is lower than you thought is a is a reason to consider having a child that otherwise you wouldn't wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought about having. And of course, if the effect is small is small enough, then you may say, "Eh, nah. uh, I'm, I'm just going to stick with where I am." Thank you. Uh, gentleman down front.
4: Good afternoon. I'm very impressed with your uh, ability to speak at length about these different topics. Uh, But I do have a quick question, because I read about uh, human psychology books and have been doing so since I was a kid. And one of my favorite books was called Personality Self-Portrait. And they start off by presenting a scenario where several kids grow up in the same environment, but they turn out to be very different, some that could be considered, obviously, more successful or less successful. Um, How much of this book is about the genetics. Are you tempted to go into scientific aspects of that? Because I know that's, that's a big part of that, that, an intangible aspect of why two people can draw up in the same environment and then turn out completely different. And then what conclusions have you come to? And I don't know, I didn't hear the forward if you are actually a psychologist or psychiatrist, what your background is, but what conclusions do you come to that are different from what we grew up with? Because most of us probably came to most of these conclusions in a, as adults before.
1: Right, so uh, you know, the, you know, the science is very good that, that, that uh, there are moderate genetic effects on personality and little or no parental effect on personality. Right, so in terms of uh, in terms of my background, I'm actually an economist. I did wind up reading an enormous amount of psychology because just for historical reasons, psychologists are, have been more interested in the nature nurture question than any, <clears throat> excuse me than any other social science. Uh, so the, basically they blazed the trail and afterwards other researchers started using the same methods so the same methods have been used uh, by medical researchers by by economists by sociologists uh, so I mean in, in terms of uh, you know what you learned when you were a kid are you thinking about you thinking about the psychology that you learned when you were a kid is that is that yeah, yeah. right so I mean basically the main development uh, that I'd say that uh, you know that, you know that is just that you know 30 years ago uh, Adoption and twin studies were still in a bit of a ghetto in psychology, or in psychology, and since then they have uh, come out of the ghetto and have taken over a very large part of the area. So the kinds of things that I'm saying now, I think would would be very broadly accepted in psychology. Although you know, psychology is a very fragmented discipline, so there are still some islands of people who really go and look at and, and go and compare parental outcomes with child outcomes, and then say therefore parenting caused the change.
0: Yes.
5: Because back in the back in the middle nineties I'm sorry. Back in the middle nineties when you wrote I read your book back in the middle nineties and I was working on mine. There was an attitude that having children was a personal decision and you were totally equal regardless of what you did. It was your responsibility for yourself that mattered. During the Clinton, you know, during the middle nineties, that was the way it seemed like we were thinking. And a lot of political issues have happened since then. You know, the gays in the military, 9-11, gay marriage, all kinds of things have been debated. Now it seems like the tone has changed. It seems like there's a concern about generativity, that there's a moral concern that every person sense that he has a stake, his own skin in the future that follows after him. I sense that in the debate now that I didn't sense 15 years ago. Um, there's this book, The the Natural Family, by Carlson and Merrow that called a manifesto. You may have heard of that, and you may be familiar with the place he's coming from. I think it's changed, and I'm concerned about it. I've had some experiences. I think we're entering a world where you're going to have responsibility for other people, regardless of whether you choose to engage in behavior that can create children or not you know have sexual intercourse with the opposite sex you're going to be responsible for people anyway and so maybe you, you we need to think about what generates responsibility differently than we did 15 years ago it seems to me it's changing Do, can you comment on that because I pick, I've picked up a big change
1: hmm, I'd say I haven't noticed any change uh, I mean at least to me it looks to me like the pop uh, like the you know the mainstream view is that whether or not you have children how many you have is a personal choice uh which which you know, I I agree with right I am not like I said I'm not trying to harass anyone and pressure them to have kids I just want to point out an opportunity to have kids that you might otherwise not want to have because you're too scared of the sacrifice involved uh, I mean the, the book the natural family I think that's the that's the quiver full book if I remember correctly yes I mean hmm, I mean I mean I mean uh I mean, to me, this, this book, is, you know, to cite such an extremely weird non-mainstream book as a sign of the mainstream changing is, is a bit odd. I mean, this is basically a book uh, where people really are advocating what some people have claimed I do advocate, which I don't, which is just to try to have as many kids as possible. Thanks. Uh, I'd say that's a very unusual position in today's society. And I think, if anything, it's probably even, more, even rarer than it was 15 years ago. But Thank I could you.
0: Uh, I think we're going to go to uh, uh, the gentleman back here in the
6: blue suit. Yes. Uh, So Brian and I actually discussed this before, but I figure it might be worth mentioning in a... Uh, public as well, and that is that you say in the book that uh, parents have a big effect on sort of superficial party identification, religious identification, but not on uh, deeper attitudes, but there's a lot of literature uh, on public opinion which shows that whether you think of yourself as a Democrat or Republican, actually, in and of itself, even controlling fraud of other variables has a big impact on how you perceive events. Uh, Big recent examples, many Republicans accepted expansions of government from President Bush, a Republican, they wouldn't have accepted for a Democrat just now. You and I recently have both written about how various Democrats recently have accepted military actions from Obama because he's a Democrat. They probably would not and in some cases actually did not accept uh, just a couple years ago from Bush. So it seems to me that uh, if you can affect someone's superficial sense that, or seemingly superficial sense they're a Democrat or Republican, uh, that can often have a big impact on specific issue attitudes. Uh, I haven't looked at data or as closely, but I would be surprised if you don't see similar effects. That is, it, every, controlling for everything else, a person who think of, thinks of themselves as a Christian I think, is more likely to believe that Christ is really the son of God. There are some Christians who don't believe this, or some self-identified Christians, but on average, I'd be very surprised if it weren't true that the self-identified Christian is more likely to believe that, uh, because people have a sense, well, if I'm a Christian or I'm a Democrat or whatever, uh, you're more likely to believe the kinds of things that you see other Democrats believing. You're more likely to give a Democratic president slack than a Republican one, uh, and so on. And the same, of course, goes for Republicans and uh, supporters of other religions, I would think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point, Aaliyah. When I think about the issue position questions, they're almost always asked in a totally abstract sense. So they just like, what's your view on the death penalty? What's your view on capitalism? What's your view on flag burning? Uh, like they almost never ask about a very current event-oriented issue. And there, I, find, I do find a lot more plausible that your party identification by itself would actually change your position on, say, whether government is growing too big. That, you know, there, there, if you are superficially Republican, you may have a very different view than if you're a Democrat. So um, you know, I, I would say there's no direct confirmation of it, but what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. On the case of religion, again, usually the doctrinal questions they, that they ask are not quite as basic as, well, you know, was Christ the son of God? Where again, I'm confident that you're right. That people who say they're Christians are a lot more likely to believe that than people who say they're not Christians. They're more like things like the little truth of the Bible. Is it okay to use contraception? Uh, you know, think you know like th- things where you know they are not sh- like virtually definitionally part of of what the identity is. So you know, so you know, like basically from the identity you can get a bit more. Although I would still still say that it's uh, fairly superficial for someone to say yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, but I never go to church and. I, you know, don't actually, you know, and I, I, you know, use contraception even though I'm Catholic and, and so on. But, yeah, I mean, but your point's very, your point's very well taken. It's good. Maybe publishable.
0: Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that uh, I thought of as you were talking in, in regard to religion is uh, if, if someone is adopted into a Catholic or a Protestant uh, family in Northern Ireland, mm. um, you know, or, or especially, you know, um, decades ago, what kind of impact would that have on? And, and, and certainly it, it seems like depending on the political context in, in, of an identity
1: Right, right. I mean, there there was a famous uh, separated twin case for one twin, where you know the twins were half Jewish, one fled to the U.S., but the other one somehow remained and survived and was in the Hitler Youth, and when they were reunited later in life, they were actually fairly different. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean you know, the the Hitler Youth one was, you know, he was not a Nazi. I mean, like you know, if you were a German boy growing up in Germany, then you became, you joined the Hitler Youth, right? So, but you know, nevertheless, he was quite a bit uh, harsher in his uh, overall outlook than his brother who, uh, who uh, grew up in the U.S., and they didn't get along that well. I take one more question.
0: Uh, uh, Jason?
7: I'd like to play devil's advocate and, and suggest something that I don't actually subscribe to. Uh, one of your uh, responses at Cato Unbound is uh, uh, Gregory Clark, who's a mm. historical demographer. And he suggested that uh, what you see across generations is eventually there is a tendency to return to the mean. Mm -hmm. So if you are a very high-earning, well-educated family now, you can expect that in several generations, your children are going to maybe tumble back down to somewhere in the middle. And if you are poor now, assuming your family doesn't die out, you can expect that your children will rise back to to the middle. So what this suggests to me is if he's right then your suggestion about uh, if you want your children to be successful and happy and well-educated and all this, uh, and, and you're counting on your genetics to do it, uh, what, you're really, what you're really suggesting is that uh, people who are middle class and below should breed a lot, and people who are upper class are only going to be disappointed by their children anyway. <laughs> uh, so I, I'd like you to respond to that argument.
1: Uh, that, that is a very clever point. Uh, yes, I have thought about it. It did not make it into the book. So I mean, the question is, does regression in the mean mean that uh, if you're above average, your children will be a disappointment to you, so you should not have kids. Whereas if you were below the mean, your children are going to do better than you, and uh, you'll, you'll be happy with them. Uh, so I guess, I guess it does you know, so I mean, there is a question, of, you know, like, to what extent do people already realize this? To what extent to say Arnold Schwarzenegger realized that his, that his kids are unlikely to become movie stars and governors of California? Uh, I'm not totally sure about this, but I do think that very successful people realize that it's not reasonable to think that their kids will be, will be as successful as they are. So if they're already taking this into account, then there's, this is not any, any, any additional reason to have fewer kids. But it's true if, if uh, you just had never heard of mean regression and you thought your kids would be exactly equal to you in terms of success, then uh, yes, the, this, this, is, this is very relevant. So like if you've never heard of the regression of the mean, uh, yes, it, uh, it is a fact. It is likely that if you're above average, your children won't be successful, and if you can't cope with that... Then uh, this you know this this is a re- this is a reason an argument against having kids. And on the other hand, if you are below the mean, uh, probably it might be hard for you to understand mean regression. But nevertheless, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know if it were if, if you did understand it, it would be a re- you know you know just, just put in common sense terms your kids are probably going to have a better life than you and you and you'll you'll feel good about that. Uh, yeah. So so I mean uh, very much worth saying. But here's the thing: they're, they're like the, the best way to fight mean regression is just to pick a spouse that is as elite as you are. So you know, like the main mechanism of mean regression is just that there is not perfect assortative mating. So generally, the person you have kids with is, is not as good as you if you're above average. So one thing I do say in the book is focus very hard on finding a spouse who resembles the kids that you uh, want to have.
2: And have more kids, because yes. it, whereas it's true that the average child... Uh, of a high IQ person, the IQ isn't as high. It's also true the next generation of really high IQ kids will come predominantly from those who have high. So if you have four kids, uh, you have a real good shot that at least one of those four will be smarter than you are.
0: The other three won't be. It depends
1: on whether you're focused on your average child, your most successful child, or your least successful child.
0: I'll end just with a a thought uh, that came to mind and bring it back to the policy I work on, which is largely school choice. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me when I was reading your book and and thinking about shared and non-shared environments Mm -hmm. and the extent of family impact on their child that a child spends most of their time in school once they're in school. Um, And that's where they find their peer group. And if our educational options are relatively homogenous and difficult to find ones that match with a particular family's values or, uh, desire for outcomes in their child, um, to the extent that they can't control that environment directly, um, or there's a constricted range of variation. Um, I wonder what kinds of impacts we could see if parents could choose, from a, a diverse range of educational options. And uh, I'd love to continue the discussion with you on that. But for now, I'd like to thank you and, uh, and Charles Murray for, for the discussion. And we have uh, refreshments upstairs. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. And, and, th- and thank you very much to Charles.